Greetings, everyone. Welcome to a feline-flavored edition of the George Sanders Show. Uh, Halloween is creeping up quickly, so we are discussing two spooky films today with Cat in the title. We'll be talking about Paul Schrader's 1982 film, Cat People, as well as Edgar Ulmer's 1934 film, The Black Cat, starring Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, and some other people. Um, we'll also be discussing the career of Bela Lugosi and picking our cinema essential, Cat. <laughs> uh, with me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mike. Uh, have you picked out your Halloween costume yet? Uh, no. I don't. I no don't, I don't do Halloween costumes. You have two kids. The kids will be dinosaurs. Oh, really? That's gonna be cute. Yeah. What kind of dinosaurs? Uh, Tyrannosauri. Both of them. Yeah. Dope. Uh, but are you going trick or treating? They're really small. Your kids are tiny. Uh, yeah, we're going to take the, the oldest one around to a couple of neighbors. Aww, but, that's yeah. sweet. Yeah. She's only she's only two, so she doesn't get any of the candy. <laughs> we're gonna, what we're kind gonna, of racket are you running we're, here? We're going to eat the candy. Nice. <laughs> uh, Lindy and I picked our Halloween candy um, last week, and you know we got this giant bowl that you know uh, is full of candy. But every night we've been sitting down and you know watching some TV and, and stuff, and candy. slowly the airheads. Are, are not long for this world. I mean, <laughs> yeah, my wife hides the Halloween candy from me so that it it doesn't uh, disappear <laughs> prematurely. Well, I uh, I finally got the Halloween costume. I think I'm going to wear every year. Yeah, I'm going to be Tom Baker, the Fourth Doctor. I got the hat. I got the ten foot long scarf. I'm still working on the jacket, but you do you do have the hair. I know. I think I'm, I was born to play him. So uh, I I think I don't have to worry about Halloween costumes for the rest of my life. Uh, but anyway, let's get talking about some of these movies. Um, let's start with a clip from Cat People. It's blood. Death. You can't escape the nightmare without me. And I can't escape without you. I've waited a long time for you. Oh, don't you touch me! But I'm the only one who can touch you. You're the only one who can touch me. Don't you see? We're safe together because we're the same. Jane, I'm not like you! Oh, yes, you are. You've always known it. Do you remember when you were a child, the animals used to call your name? And you knew in the dark when the others were dreaming, and you could never get to sleep. Head in your mouth like an egg. 
need you. Who are you? You're not my brother. Okay, that was a clip from the 1982 film Cat People, uh, directed by Paul Schrader. The story is Natasha Kinski plays a woman who ends up in New Orleans uh, searching for her long-lost brother, and uh, it turns out that they are from this ancient race of part human, part cat, cat people. creatures, or cat people, as it were. Um, and... The crux of their existence is uh, once they have sex with somebody, they turn into like a jaguar or like a panther. A black leopard. A black leopard. Thank you, Sean, for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. Um, And they can't revert back to being humans until they kill somebody. It's a loose, from what I gather, a very loose remake of the 1942 film that is one of your favorites, Sean. Is that correct? Yeah, it's... uh... The original is a movie that I, I love a lot, and, and we've talked a lot about remakes recently on the show, and and uh, talked about films in relation to their predecessors, even. Uh, yeah, and I kind of want to avoid that with this, not yeah. only because I actually haven't seen the original. Um, I was really tempted to watch it um, in preparation for this show, but then I thought better of it. I thought, you know what, we've uh, uh, you know the last several shows have been dedicated to you know comparisons, but. As a way of starting this little dialogue here, without spoiling too much, is there one thing that this remake does better than the original, in your mind? I, I like the music a lot. Yes, I agree. It's by uh, the, the it's got like a creepy electronic score by Giorgio Moroder and uh, the theme song, of course, by David Bowie. Which uh, many people, even if you haven't seen this film, uh, Quentin Tarantino from. used it in *Inglorious Bastards* yeah. uh, very well. I think it's one of Tarantino's greatest musical choices. Yeah. Uh, other than that, no. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, okay. You know, I can't compare it to the original. The thing with me in this film, there are a lot of things I like about this movie, but it's it's kind of the stuff. I don't want to say on the periphery of it, but like I think the story and the performances are pretty bad. Um, and if if both of those things are bad, you've got a bad movie on your hands. But I really think the the music's great. I, I I think everybody agrees on the music. I think I was looking at awards that this movie was nominated for back in '82, and the only thing it was nominated for was music. I think at the Golden Globes. Or something. That's appropriate. Yeah, um, but there's some other stuff in here that I do like, but it's not enough to make this a worthwhile movie. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's it's hard for me to talk about without comparing it to the original because. My my biggest problem with with Schrader's movie and kind of with Schrader in general is best exemplified by the big major difference between this version and the original. Mm. So if I can talk about the first one. Sure. For, for just a little bit. Okay. Uh, I'll allow it. As opposed to the remake. In the remake, it's the brother and the sister, Malcolm McDowell and Nastasia Kinski, are, are cursed with this thing where if they have sex, they turn into cats and have to kill people. That's not 
the the setup for the first one. The first one, it's it's one woman, uh, played by Simone Simone, and if she believes, but it's not ever actually really confirmed that if she has sex, then she will turn into a cat. Mm. There's no brother figure, and there's no kind of silly rule about once you turn into a cat, they have to kill somebody in order to revert back to human. Uh, it's it's much more about this kind of fear of, of female sexual desire and, and aggression. So it's it's this really kind of darkly comic movie about men's fear of women being sexually active. Mm-hmm. Schrader's version, though, is just anti-sex. It's it's uh, it's it's uh, it, it argues basically that this whole kind of primal sex drive that people have turns them into literally monsters. And it's not men, it's not women, it's everybody. Right. Specifically these two people. Right. And, you know, that just makes it a much less interesting movie to me. Yeah, I, I, agree. I think, you know, Schrader has this, this weird kind of, uh, puritanical strain in his work where he's like fascinated by all these kinds of perversions, but he's constantly, you know, judging them Mm -hmm. that I find just really off putting like Paul Schrader never has any fun in his movies. And this movie should be fun. That's actually, that's a, that's a wonderful segue because I was thinking about this movie while I was watching it and it's not, my problem with this movie is it doesn't go in one direction far enough. Like it's not campy enough. Um, Malcolm McDowell plays it campy, but everybody he does, else he does, is, his, he does his best. Yeah, he's Malcolm McDowell, so that's yeah. that's impressive, right? <laughs> yeah, he's 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 going for it in that direction, but it's like he's in a totally different movie, exactly. From Sasha Kinski, and one well, from John Hurt too, yeah. and most everybody else. Um, and then on the flip side, it's also the film isn't um, scary enough either. Like it, it kind of just you know goes down the middle, and it doesn't really commit to one or the other. I think because so many disparate parts are, are going in, in different directions here. Um, and so, yeah, that's ultimately my biggest problem with this film is it just doesn't commit to a, a tone, um, which is a shame. Because if this was played for camp, it could be a lot of fun. And there are moments where it, it works like that. Um, uh, Ed Bagley Jr. is yeah. in here briefly. Um, I call him by his Gambino name, Eddie Bagels, but uh, he—he's pretty great. He's pretty great, and he has and this. I liked uh, Annette O'Toole also. Yeah, there. Some of the, um, you know, some of the bit characters are wasted. Yeah. Ruby, Ruby D, D is completely wasted as Famale. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I was so great. I was so happy to see her in the opening credits. I love Ruby D. Yeah, she's, I was like, Ruby D's in this? This is yeah. going to be awesome. And then she just plays this, you know, nothing. You, you feel like there was more to her role that got cut out Probably. of the movie. Yeah. Because she just kind of ends up imprisoned and kind of disappears from the blood, which is is odd. Yeah. Like, what is her relation to this family? Like, there's more to her story that, that Trader doesn't tell us. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a tantalizing tidbit that just doesn't go anywhere. Um, so, yeah, there are these little moments of, of um, inventiveness or, or campiness that are really cool. Um, and then also there are some, um, like, things that he does with the camera that are really interesting and, and really cool, like the cat vision optical effect stuff. Yeah, and a lot of, like, the, the setting, it's set in New Orleans, and it's it just kind of... 
which is a perfect setting for this because New Orleans is is very kind of oh yeah decadent mis- mystical and, mm-hmm. and decadent and and it's one of the few places in America where a kind of pre modern past coexists with the present, so you can you can get away with with this kind of mystical type story. Uh, San Francisco would be the other great place, but it just doesn't coalesce. It just doesn't yeah. work um, for me and. I think Kinski's part of the problem. Yeah. She, for me at least, um, Schrader was apparently seeing her at the time, and it yeah. kind of shows that he just wanted to show off his naked girlfriend. <laughs> uh, because pretty much the second half of this movie is Kinski walking around naked. Um, and, you know, that's great and all, but <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't really tie the whole picture together for me. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a, she's an odd actress. Like, I, I haven't seen her in all that much, but she kind of tends to, like, overplay the naivete of the character in the beginning, but then she doesn't really sell the, the kind of twisted perversity at the end of, like, the final, you know, twist ending of the film. It just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And there's a lot about, you know, the plot that just kind of set off my, my plausibility alarm that I try to ignore, which is that, you know, in, in the original film, it's, it's sexual desire mm-hmm. that, that turns her into a, a cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this film, it's like the actual physical act of having sex mm-hmm. that does it. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, why doesn't Malcolm McDowell just not have sex? Because he's Malcolm McDowell. He's apparently a, like a serial killer. He's, he's like Caligula. constantly going out and, and hiring <laughs> prostitutes and then killing them. I'm like, why? You know, lots of people just don't have sex either by choice, by like becoming priests or something, or not by choice, and they seem to get along just fine. But apparently, it's like this unstoppable urge, and Malcolm McDowell right. cannot prevent himself from from killing people. Um, and that actually brings up a point. I'm, I'm just thinking of this now, but. You know, the first time we see him uh, kill somebody, it's implied that he actually, because I mean, he, he's in this hotel room waiting for a hooker. Yeah, that, that whole scene doesn't, doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it like, doesn't make any sense at all. He's waiting in the hotel room for a hooker. She shows up and then he kills her. But when did he have sex? Yeah, he never had sex with her. He just attacked her as this, uh, this cat. So right. that doesn't even make any sense. And if he had sex before that and then turned into the cat who called the hooker. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. When in the hooker when she shows up, uh, you know, the um the guy at the door says he's been waiting a long time or whatever. So I mean I guess maybe I don't know. I don't wanna I don't wanna extrapolate and try and figure out what was going on there. But yeah, that's a that's a big plot hole. Um another uh, one of the things that irked me when you talk about um plausibility is after Kinsky turns into the cat the first time. She and John Hurd, the father from Home Alone, have uh, <laughs> slept together, uh, and they're staying at this little cabin, and she goes off into the, the swamp or uh, the bayou or whatever and turns into the, the cat, and that's a really great scene, but then she comes back, and Hurd is on the couch, and he's, um, he's snoozing, but he hears a noise, and uh, he, he looks up, and for a second we see a POV shot of him seeing her and she's covered in blood and she's like, don't look at me or whatever. And then the next morning he's like, let's go home. (laughs) Like he doesn't question the fact that 
Kinski was in the middle of the night covered in blood. Yeah, walk around, walk around naked, <laughs> yeah. covered in blood. Like, hey, what's going hey. on? He's like, I love this woman. It's cool. I actually like John Hurt in this, and uh, you know, I always know him as like the the dad from Home Alone, and this just kind of you know, kind of mediocre character actor from the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but I, I think he's actually really good here, and and he's uh, he's even better in uh, this movie called Cutter's Way, which came out around the same time with uh, with Jeff Bridges, mm. I think, where he gets like this really big, flashy, starry role that he's he's fantastic. He's like a uh, uh, he's like a, a war veteran who's like disabled, and he wants to be like a, a detective, so he's like obsessively trying to solve this conspiracy that he thinks he found is like. Uh, Somewhat Lebowski-like. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I've only seen him in uh, Home Alone. He he's pretty decent in this. He's not offensive, um, but he, he has a couple of line readings and a couple other people too that have these really tone deaf line readings in this. I don't know if it was like a first take thing or they changed the script on the spot, but um, he has one. I don't remember the line exactly, but it's it, the inflection is totally wrong. It's like what are you going to do today? Or something like that, which just takes you out of the movie. And I can't believe they left that stuff in there. But you know, Yeah, I, I would blame the director. For I would blame that. the director for that too. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, it, it varies from scene to scene. Um, uh, did you catch uh, who the producer of this was? I did. I actually wrote it down. Jerry Bruckheimer. Jerry Bruckheimer. Yep. Which uh, makes a lot of sense. It absolutely does. Um, uh, what else have you seen from Schrader as a director? Have you seen like American Gigolo or? No, I don't think I've, uh, I, you know, I've only really known his work, um, through his writing, you know, especially the Scorsese stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't think I've seen anything else that he's done. I saw American Gigolo a, a long time ago and it's, it's similar to this. It's like, it's got like this really kind of, uh, kind of flashy and really cool surface that matches a, a story that is kind of lacking mm-hmm. in, in uh, you know, a few of the essential things, either, either you know, interesting characters or dialogue or, or interesting thematically. And I, I actually just watched last night um, one of his uh, first big screenplays, which was uh, Obsession for Brian De Palma, which came out the year before Taxi Driver. And it's, it's a similar kind of thing where... I think uh, I think De Palma and and Scorsese, when they're working with Schrader, can kind of bring out the kind of ludicrous elements in his ideas. But when he's working on his own, he seems to be taking himself too seriously. I can totally see that. Uh, and then, like uh, uh, on the uh, like special features for the 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 movie, De Palma is talking about like their original conception of the screenplay, and uh, it was much worse than the finished oh, right. product. Like there was there was a whole third act that was totally unnecessary and and would have just been stupid had they actually used it and there was a, a, a an incestuous twist to the plotline that they really wanted to include but apparently the test audiences didn't like it so they made it a dream sequence and it's just that kind of uh, Paul Schrader thing where he's like this is perverse right look at how transgressive I am right when it's you know that's. I, I'm fine with being, you know, transgressive, but either you well, know, and you're really, plenty be, really be transgressive, <laughs> right. or or you know have you know a sense of humor about it, right? And so yeah, and you need to either go all the way, like you're saying, in one direction or the other, and and I don't think that that Schrader ever really does that. No, I don't think he commits at all. So 
When is your Canyons Blu-ray arriving? <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing with uh, with Lindsay Lohan, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. The, uh, the Brett Easton Ellis penned uh, Paul Schrader directed. Sold. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, that just sounded like a terrible idea from the get-go. But uh, Although I did read that profile. Was it in the New York Times? Or Variety or something? Where they profiled the making of that movie. And it was pretty fascinating just for... You know the insanity involved with Lohan and all that, but, but I, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I think I think maybe I just I don't either. I don't get Paul Schrader, or I just don't like Paul Schrader. But there's, I don't really think you're missing something. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the same reaction, you know, to this as you did. So I, yeah, I, I don't think there's much to get. I don't know. We're we're going to talk about Brian De Palma in a couple of weeks, but um, for a long time I've not gotten De Palma at all. And just recently I've watched like three of his kind of Hitchcock. Uh, influenced films, and I've really liked all of them. So I, I might be getting on board the De Palma train, and maybe someday I'll get on board the the Schrager train as well. <laughs> but I'm not I'm not there yet, and, and Cat People did not did not put me there. Well, there's plenty of room on the Schrader train, so don't worry about getting a ticket anytime soon. Uh, well, with that, that's our discussion of Cat People. We're going to take a break, uh, listen to some Cat Power. So uh, this is probably the most appropriate song you could possibly hear. Okay, that was Cat Power's cover of uh, Moby Grape's Naked If I Want To. And uh, if we did our job right, you probably pictured uh, Malcolm McDowell walking naked down your street. So uh, go I'm, us. I'm pretty much uh, <laughs> picturing that all the time. That's right. It's particularly foggy out right now, so it's, uh, it's a great time for Malcolm McDowell to walk naked down our street. Talking about other offensive things, uh, Sean, in the news, we don't have much. There's not much news. I really tried to find some good stuff this week, but... Um, the only thing we found was the thing that really yeah, pisses you so, off. You know, it's uh, every week. It seems we talk about this, but let's uh, let's talk about Johnny Toe. Let's do it. So, uh, Grantland, the uh, online magazine, I guess it is. I don't know what it is. Uh, published a, a, a thing about about Johnny Toe this week, kind of for the the DVD release of, of Drug War, and it's very pro Johnny Toe, but it just really annoyed me. <laughs> did, did you read it? I sent, I sent you, you sent me the link. I, I read it after you sent it to me. Yeah. Did it annoy you too? 
Yeah, I mean, I wasn't like incensed, but um, I reading it, I was like, I know your problem with it is that. Well, I think we should explain what what's going on. Well, I have, I have three main problems with it. Uh, first is that it's just inaccurate in in a lot of kind of. Uh, weird ways, like like he he implies that in the late '90s Johnny Toe went from television to to movies when he'd actually been directing movies for for 20 years at that point. Um, and then uh, there's like a little sidebar with like 10, 10 recommendations for movies with like a little plot synopses, and some of the plot synopses just are not correct. Uh-huh. Like the the one for for Breaking News, just nobody who has actually seen Breaking News would describe its plot in that way, mm-hmm. which is just really strange. So it's just kind of, you know, not correct mm-hmm. in, you know, fairly small areas. Uh, the second problem is I found it really kind of condescending in its approach to Hong Kong cinema. And this is coming out of his, like his own personal experience as like, like a kid watching, you know, crazy Hong Kong movies and, and, a lot of movies about Hong Kong film kind of start this way with like taking the, like the most ridiculous extreme examples of like cheesy dialogue or ridiculous uh, you know actions. And there's a lot of that in Hong Kong movies because there's a lot of crazy stuff in Hong Kong movies. And then they just kind of use that as describing what the whole industry is like. And so it's like, hey, those Hong Kongers make some crazy movies, but this guy made a couple good ones, so you should probably watch it. That was the part of it that annoyed me the most, but we can get back to that in a second. But. And I just, I find that attitude really kind of condescending, and it, it, it ties into the thing that we've talked a lot, a lot on the show about just kind of the disrespect that Americans have towards Hong Kong cinema and how that kind of justifies uh, things like Harvey Weinstein, you know, cutting and, 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 and dubbing. The, the movies that he buys. So I've talked about that a lot. We don't need to talk about it anymore. And then the, the third thing was it, it totally ignores his romantic comedies, which drives me nuts. And this is a common thing in, in, in talking about Johnny Toe, at least when Americans talk about him, because we, we like gangster movies. We think Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong action directors, they make movies about cops with guns. Uh, they're a crazy when you know half of Johnny Toe's career and the most financially successful half in, in Hong Kong is built on on comedies on you know movies with Andy Lau and Sammy Chang and um, I've written about this in relation to his latest movie uh, uh, Blind Detective, but this guy who's who is introducing Johnny Toe for a general audience and a general interest web magazine you know this isn't like an obscure like you know cinephile only publication. He's introducing this director, but he's only painting, you know, half the picture of his career, which is just really annoying to me because there's kind of this dismissive attitude that like the gangster movies are his real movies and he only does the romantic comedies to make money, right. which is not the case. <laughs> the romantic comedies make money and he's interested very much in, in, you know, things thematically that he explores in his gangster movies. But he also explores those same kind of things in his romantic comedies. And it I don't know that we would take like an American director like a John Ford or Howard Hawks or Vincent Minnelli and say that, you know, Vincent Minnelli's melodramas are like the only really the ones really worth considering. He just made the musicals to make money. Right. I, well, and anybody that's seen any of the Johnny Toe uh, romantic comedies, you know, anybody that's seen Romancing in Thin Air... That's not a paycheck movie. You know what I mean? I mean, you watch that thing, yeah, and it's he, a very personal expression. Yeah, he dismisses. He he describes romantic uh, romancing at that era. It's not one of his like ten recommended 
in Johnny Toe movies. He's, he calls it a, a high-altitude rom-com. <laughs> yeah, that's not... That's not what that movie is, uh, is yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, there are there are comic elements in Romancing in Thin Air, but I would not call it a comedy. No, 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 no. It's very uh, it's, emotional. Yeah, it's a romantic drama. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the thing, you know, taking your qualms with it and blowing them up um, even further, the other problem with it is, like you said, it's ignoring half of Johnny Toe, but it's ignoring so much of Hong Kong, too. Like, yeah. it's, it's saying, like, every director... Only makes you know these gangster shoot 'em up movies, which come on now. Yeah, and <laughs> you know that that's you know it's the easiest way to write an introduction about Hong Kong movies because it grabs you. It's like right. let's take this you know totally bizarre obscure film that even you know Hong Kongers don't know anything about, mm-hmm. and we'll take like this absurd bit of dialogue out of it, and that'll like grab the audience. Mm-hmm. Hey, these movies are weird, right? But you know that's that's. Not a, a full picture of the industry, you know. You well, look at you wouldn't do that when talking about like a Wong Kar Wai movie. It's exactly or, yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. You know, you know, it's it's a, a industry with a long history of, of you know kung fu movies and and gangster movies, but also musicals and melodramas and romantic comedies and you know politically uh, engaged films and you know just kind of dismiss an entire industry. By that, like David Boardwell does that in his Hong Kong book, Planet Hong Kong. Um, he starts with like the kind of crazy example of of Hong Kong genre cinema, but he spends an entire book building a context around that, which he takes all of the other parts of the industry seriously and treats them with respect, and right. including the crazy you know genre films. Right, and you know you don't really have space to do that in a simple introductory essay, so. You know, maybe if he's, you know, writing a book-link thing on Hong Kong, maybe he puts it more in context. But as it reads right now... Yeah. It's it pretty dismissive and, yeah. and cursory. Yeah. No, I completely agree. So, uh, don't go read it. <laughs> don't go to Grantland. That's, that's what Sean and I say. Mostly, it's just, you know, I, I've, I've talked about Johnny Toe a lot on, on podcasts. I did, uh, my, my other podcast, I did a whole episode about Johnny Toe, and... I, you know, I, I haven't written about him all that much, though. So what this mainly wants, makes me want to do is is write more about Johnny Toe. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start doing that. I rented his his first movie from from Scarecrow this week, and I'm going to start going through them and writing about them all. So I think people, you should when people write... say this, you know, when people do stuff like this, I can say more on Twitter other than this is terrible. I can say this is terrible. Read my intro to Johnny <laughs> Toe. It's much better. Well, I look forward to reading that. I, th- I think, you know, I think... The stuff you've written on Toe um, has been great, and I look forward to reading more of it. Um, well, let's talk about cats, baby. Sure. <laughs> uh, obviously, cat people, the black cat, we're thinking about felines this week. Um, so we're picking our cinema essential cat that appears in a film. Uh, did you have any rules that you uh, imposed on your... Not really. I, I really didn't put much thought into this at all. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you let our listeners know that there was no thought put into this show whatsoever. I had, like, my initial idea, and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the cat I want. So you're likely going to, to pick that cat. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, break my heart. What's your cat? Uh, the Elliot Gould's cat and the Long Goodbye. Oh, that's a good one. I didn't think about that. That's a great choice. So the the long goodbye is Robert Altman's Raymond Chandler adaptation, uh, but it's set in kind of the the gauzy early nineteen seventies, 
and uh, Elliot Gould plays plays the detective Philip Marlowe, and uh, this is like Elliot Gould at his peak, just kind of this uh, uh, always kind of walking around out of step with the times. Like I don't know if if everyone else is stoned or if he is stoned, but Elliot Gould never or you're really stoned. kind of fits right, right. And the the film starts with him trying to feed his cat. His cat's hungry and he's meowing at him, but he's out of cat food. So he goes to the goes to the grocery store, but they don't have the kind the only kind of cat food that his cat will eat. So he gets another kind of cat food and tries to like fake the label on it, thinking that it's the label that the cat recognizes, and the cat refuses to eat the yeah. food. And then the and then the cat runs away. And that's my essential cat. No, that's because I, that that to me, you know, that sums up a cat. Sums up a cat. No, that's a great pick. I I, I did not think about that one. Um, I think the, does the cat come back at the end? It's been it's been a long, long time since I've, I've seen, seen that movie. I, I think, think the cat returns yeah. at some point. Um, speaking of the cat returns, uh, I did have a rule, and I couldn't pick animation, which is a rule I think we made when we picked our cinema central animal too. But sure. um, you know, I mean, you could raid Studio Ghibli, and you know, I thought of. Figaro, the cat from Pinocchio, which is really... I mean, if you want to see character animation at its best, I mean, Figaro is just great. But anyway, no animation. So um, I actually just watched this the other day, um, randomly. It, I didn't wasn't thinking about the Cinema Central uh, aspect of it. Um, but when people talk about Ridley Scott's Alien, mm-hmm. you know, they talk that there's only, you know, there's only one survivor at the end, and it's Sigourney Weaver's Ripley. But no, Jones the Cat... Makes it all the way through that movie, and uh, I gotta say, Jones the cat, really good cat actor. There are a couple of, of uh, reaction shots that this cat really pulls off well, and um, and the cat is very crucial to the story. Um, you know, it, uh, characters go off trying to find the cat and ultimately meet their demise, and in the poor, finale, poor Harry Dean Stanton. I know, poor <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton, um, and also um, at the end of the movie. Uh, Ripley bringing Jones on board is a very crucial element to the you know heightened uh, tension, right? Because the cat can sense the alien when the when the humans can't. That's right. Because the cat is is smarter than the humans. Yes. Um, so Jones the cat is my pick. Uh, you know, fat little tabby. Actually, That's reminds cool. me of my brother's cat, Max. That's a good cat. Yeah. Thank you. I like I like cats. I, I don't I don't care for dogs. You're allergic to cats. I am allergic to cats. I actually used to consider myself a cat person um, because we had, a, I mean, we had a dog and a cat growing up, um, and I just gravitated towards our, our tabby cat. Um, but once we, my girlfriend and I got our dog Willie, it's all changed. I'm completely sold on dogs now, and I would like it to be known that Sean has a dog named Sonny. And he doesn't show any affection for Sonny. And so every Thursday when I come over to Sean's place, Sonny gets all excited before I get here because Sonny knows that somebody's going to pay attention to her. Yeah, what is this, episode 17? <laughs> yeah. 17 weeks we'll be doing this, and now she she is trained. Every, every Thursday morning she gets all excited. Mike's coming. Somebody will pay attention to me. That's so great. <laughs> I'm so lonely. <laughs> Meanwhile, when you're in the bathroom, I'd kick your cats. But, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, they like it. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> They're perverse. That's right. Um, speaking, speaking of, of perverse. perverse. <laughs> speaking of perverse. We knew we'd get there. Let's talk about Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi. Uh, Bella Lugosi, as uh, noted in our uh, theme song for this week, is dead. It's true. Jones the Cat's probably dead, too. Probably. That was a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. What uh, a bummer. But, uh, yes. 
Belagosi is the star of our our uh, the film we'll be discussing in a minute here, uh, the Black Cat, and obviously immortalized in cinema as Dracula. Yeah, he played in the uh, was it 1931 version of of Dracula, the first I think it was the first sound adaptation of the of the story. Um, well, it was filmed concurrently with the Spanish language version, right? So, which one really came first? The American one. <laughs> Come on. Okay. Directed by Todd Browning. And, and Lugosi was a, a Hungarian, yeah. I believe. And he played Dracula on stage, which is how he got the part for the movie. And uh, uh, one of the, the cool things about early sound film is that you get all of these like weird accents oh, and yeah. dialects on, on screen. Uh, you know, people like James Cagney doing just kind of a, a streetwise American accent. But also, uh, you know, Maurice Chevalier doing his French thing. If and a then, nightingale who sing like you. <laughs> and then you get you get Bela Lugosi with his with his Hungarian accent and he's just so uh, It's thick. It's it's thick. He's he's hard to understand <laughs> yeah. at times, but but he talks really slowly and very hypnotically mm-hmm. and he's got these great eyes and he kind of carved out this this career as the star in Universal horror movies and then was never really able to do much and then you know, kind of lived a sad life after the nineteen after nineteen forty or so, yeah. which is all documented in in one of Tim Burton's best movies, uh, Ed Wood. Yeah, fantastic. Did Landau? I know Landau was nominated. Did he win? I believe so. Yeah, he's uh, been, he's just great. Yeah, Martin Landau plays Bela Lugosi, and and the movie is is mostly about uh, the friendship between Lugosi and and Ed Wood, this kind of uh, uh, heroically inept. Film director, <laughs> yes, yes, and uh, and you know, Lagosi is you know addicted to heroin and you know just pretty much penniless and and you know appears in these Ed Wood films to give them some sort of you know star power, um, even though right. he's hasn't yeah, been a star yeah. in twenty years and stuff. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's a great movie if you want to if you want to know more about uh, or you you know you want to see that kind of behind the scenes kind of stuff. Um, so have you have you seen many of Lugosi in his prime? No, I really haven't. I was looking through his filmography. Um, you know, I've seen Dracula, obviously, um, and um, Black Cat, but I don't think I've actually seen. I, I some of these Poe adaptations I know I saw when I was a kid on TV, but it's really hazy. I don't really remember. You know yeah. which ones I saw. Is he? He's not in the. No, that's uh, Vincent Price is in the Pit and the Pendulum. Um, yeah, I know. I've seen, I've seen, uh, I've seen uh, White Zombie, mm. I think, and and that's the one where he does like the the weird kind of hypnotic hand gesture thing right. that that uh, they they uh, make a special point of in Ed Wood, right? Uh, and uh, I think Mark of the, Mark of the Vampire, which is another uh, Todd Browning film, that's kind of like a parody of vampire movies, but also a vampire movie itself, right? Uh, yeah, uh, and then and then the Black Cat and. Yeah, he's he's a, a limited performer, like. But he's not, great at what he does. He is. Yeah. And and that's the thing. He's like he's he's uh, he's not as good an actor as Boris Karloff, and Karloff Karloff had a much better career. He had much more much more range, and and part of that may just have been the accent getting in the way, but. Yeah. I think in in something like the Black Cat, where you see Karloff and Lugosi together. I think Lugosi's better. Well, let's hear a clip and talk about it. Child, I hope you're not afraid of me. Where is Peter? What have you done with him? 
Hi. Surely you don't think I... We told the servant who struck him down. Where is he? Where is he? Please, child, listen to me. We are all in danger. Perisic is a mad beast, I know. I know I've seen the proof. He took Karen, my wife, murdered her, and murdered my child. And you let him live? I wait my time. It shall be soon. Very soon. Until then, I must do his bidding. That is why even my servant obeys him. Did you ever hear of Satanism, the worship of the devil, of evil? Apology is the great modern priest of that ancient cult. And tonight, dark of the moon, the rites of Lucifer are celebrated. And if I am not mistaken, he intends you to play a part in that ritual. A very important part. <coughs> Dear child, be brave. No matter how hopeless it all seems. All right, so that was a clip from The Black Cat from 1934, directed by Edgar G. Omer and starring Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And the plot is is really pretty simple. Uh, a newlywed American couple is uh, riding on the Orient Express through uh, Austria or Hungary, or Austria-Hungary, on their way to Budapest. And... They hitch a ride into town with Bella Lugosi, and they're in a big car accident. And he takes them up to Boris Karloff's uh, creepy mansion on the hill, and there Karloff basically imprisons them because he wants to use the wife in his uh, satanic ritual. And it turns out that Lugosi and Karloff have, have a past, and Lugosi has come seeking revenge after uh, 15 years. And there's all kinds of crazy shit going on in this movie. This might be, I, you know, I'm one for hyperbole, so I'll say that right off the bat. This might be the craziest movie I've ever seen in my life. Like I've wow. seen, I've seen House. I've seen, you know, these ones that are put up on, you know, pedestals as like these movies are crazy. But the Black Cat is bonkers, <laughs> and I loved every minute of it. I think it's great. I have, I have a partial list of of. Some of the uh, the crazy little uh, uh, twisted perversities or, or traumas going on in the film, and I've got uh, incest, necrophilia, post traumatic stress disorder, war crimes, flaying, Satanism, modernist architecture, and a cat. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we didn't talk about incest uh, in Cat People too. The, yeah. we, this could be the incest episode, but uh... thank God. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a whole bunch, of, and this movie's a smidge over an hour long, so they they cram all this stuff in here, um, and it's just bonkers. Yeah, into into one, it's basically one location in in this house that's is kind of Art Deco house, and if you've seen Los Angeles plays itself, you you know that that modern architecture, modernist architecture, is shorthand in Hollywood for evil. So this is this uh, this mansion that that Karloff has built, and he's built it on the the ruins of a battle of a battlefield from World War One, where you know dozens of people have died, and or dozens, hundreds, thousands of people died, uh, which is uh, 
neatly informed to us by the the driver of like the the taxi as he's like driving through this rainstorm talking about oh this ravine over here it was piled with dozens of bodies high it was it was great but that's all gone now and then he crashes <laughs> the car and dies <laughs> so Karloff's built this mansion and uh in the war he was uh Lugosi's commanding officer and I don't know that it's ever really kind of made clear what exactly Karloff did to piss off Lugosi other than than steal his wife while Lugosi was in prison. We don't really know why Lugosi was in prison, do we? I don't know. That never comes up. But yeah, Karloff um, lied to Lugosi's wife and child and said that uh, Lugosi was dead, even though he knew that that wasn't the case. And yeah, and then he wed the wife, and uh, when the wife died... He in, he encases her in glass. He like embalms her and encases her in glass in his basement, along with a bunch of other dead, pretty young women that are just floating there, which is super creepy and cool looking. Uh, and then he decided, oh, what the hell? I'm gonna go marry the daughter. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> this movie's crazy. And you know, of course, he's also a Satanist, and he leads the the local Satanic coven. So the the two Americans that kind of happen into this story, there's like the the kind of dopey guy and the and the pretty wife, and they keep drugging the wife and imprisoning her. And Lugo, and Karloff wants to do something with her in the Satanic ritual at the end, but Lugosi, you know, comes through and and kind of saves the day and gets his his twisted revenge. Well, I want to talk about that for a second. Um, talking about Lugosi, what's interesting about this movie is... He's the straight man. He's the hero of this movie. But when he, we first meet him on the train, when he has to share the compartment with the, the newlyweds, at least from my reading of it, he seems totally evil. Because he comes in and they, they film it like he's an imposition. He's, he's totally... You know, breaking into their... Well, at you this know, point, he's, he's, you know, world famous as Dracula. So well, exactly. He's, he's got this this reputation when he comes on screen that he's, you know, he's a bad guy. Right. And then, and he, you know, he he shares this compartment with them, and um, he kind of chit-chats with them, and they, <laughs> they, um, they ask him where he's going, he says, oh, to visit a friend, and they say, oh, are you going to have, you know, enjoy some sport or something like that? And he says... Perhaps. And then he, like, looks out the window and has this, like, kind of crazy, like, uh, emotional, you know, moment, you know? And then the couple falls asleep on each other's shoulders, and he, he's so creepy, he leans in and starts caressing the hair of the, the wife, and the husband sees this, and he's like, oh, she reminds me of my wife, or something like that. Totally creepy! But then it turns out, oh, wait, this guy's the hero. Yeah, because he may be creepy. And he may be disturbed and obsessive about his revenge, but he's still better than Boris Karloff. Oh, he absolutely. Although we'll talk about his revenge in a second, but uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Like I thought it was really interesting that you you kind of go into it like, oh, what's this guy's deal? But then yeah, he's. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Boris Karloff is great. Speaking of the Satanism, my one of my favorite parts in this movie is. Um, <laughs> Carlos has been going around, it's like the middle of the night, and he's he's been going around the house, like, doing creepy stuff. Like, he goes down to his basement, looks at his, you know, collection of dead women, and he goes into what he thinks is Lugosi's room, but he switched rooms with the husband, and um, he was going to hash it out with that, him. That, by the way, first rule of spending a night in Boris Karloff's house, switch rooms. Like, if he says, you go to this room and you go to that room, switch always them. trade. Yeah, always trade. It's true. Um, 
It's, it's always true. And also, another rule, uh, if you're sharing public transit with Bella Lugosi, uh, get off and catch the next train yeah. or bus. You know, you can wait. Yeah, it's, it's fine. A, you know, you'll be fine. Uh, but anyway, my favorite thing is, so he goes through your house doing all this creepy stuff, and then he gets back into bed um, with the young, you know, his young bride, uh, Lugosi's daughter. Um, and he turns on the light, and he pulls out a book on Satanism, and he reads, like, half a page, and then he's like, oh, I'm kind of sleepy. <laughs> he puts the book down and goes to sleep. Yeah, I, I, I do that. I, I read, you know, maybe, like, half a New Yorker article, and then I go to sleep. Oh, I know, I know, but it's so funny that it's, like... <laughs> it's just a book on it's Satanism. It's just a book on Satanism that's going to, you know, put me to sleep. <laughs> I love the, the image when, when we first see Karloff. Um, the Lugosi and the Americans have, have arrived in the middle of the night. And so uh, Lugosi is, is wakened up by a servant, and it's the shot of... of Karloff is woken up. Or Karloff is woken up by a servant. And uh, you, we, we get the shot of uh, of his bed with, like, the... Uh, what do you call it? The Yeah, the little uh, translucent drape thing. Yeah, yeah. drapery yeah. things around the, the, the bed. And there's we all we see is the, the woman, this pretty blonde woman, asleep. And then you see the shadow kind of very stiffly rise up, and he looks exactly like Frankenstein, yeah. like in 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 silhouette. Uh, it's like, oh, that's Karloff. Yeah. And then he gets up and he walks very stiffly around, and then we see that you know his makeup is totally different. He doesn't look like Frankenstein at all, but it's the same kind of just stiff manner. Oh yeah, he's got this widow's peak thing going on that's really, really cool looking. Um, well, yeah, talking about that shadow thing, um, Almer does a lot of really cool stuff with lighting in this. Like, there's the scene when um, they're driving in the taxi or whatever it is um, in the, at the beginning of the movie, and it's storming out, and he's filming uh, the couple with Lugosi in the back seat, um, and it's pitch black behind them. It looks like they're just in, in a void. There's nothing there, but then, you know, punctuate it with these bursts of lightning that are so vibrant, and then it, like, really, you know kind of shocks you and it you know that's used a lot in movies where they you know use lightning to heighten things but the contrast i've never seen the contrast um so profound where it's just like utter blackness you know and then you know it's... yeah and Omer had a fascinating career he started he's german uh he's actually from like austria hungary He's Austrian. Uh, anyway, he started in, in Germany in the 20s in German Expressionism, working as like a production designer, art director, some working with Fritz Lang and, and F.W. Murnau. And uh, he was one of the, uh, the several directors of this movie, People on Sunday, from 1930, that had like this ridiculous group of people like Robert C. Odmack, Billy Wilder, Edgar G. Ulmer, all working together to make this this. Uh, really kind of sweet kind of city drama that's not expressionist at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, he comes to America to, to get away from the Nazis, as, you know, many great uh, uh, German directors did. And he continues to work as a production designer and art director throughout the 1930s. Um, he's got, like, a fascinating list of, list of credits on IMDb. But then he spends most of, like, the next 20, 30 years as, like, this ultra-low-budget Poverty Row director. Like, he did The Black Cat for Universal as part of, like, the one of the last stages of their big, really popular horror cycle. But throughout the, the 40s and 50s, he really just wasn't getting much work at all. So he do, like, these bizarre little genre films that he would have total control over. So they're totally like expressive of his vision. So he's, he's a director beloved by auteurists who Mm -hmm. are always like looking for directors who were able to 
you know, express themselves within the confines of, of a system. And I haven't seen uh, hardly any of his later movies, but the, the one that has to be seen is uh, Detour, yeah. which is uh, like this no-budget film noir from, from 1945 that's, that's really remarkable. Yeah, it's great. I I haven't seen it in 15 years, but it it really made a profound impression on me, and I I do want to see it again. It's a really great movie. Um, And, you know, the universal horror films are very influenced by German Expressionism, of course, but here you have, you know, one of the architects of German Expressionism making a universal horror film, and it's, they go great together. They they just go together, just wonderful. I'm going to stop saying fantastic. (laughs) They go together just perfectly. Yeah. The end of the movie is when all of the craziness really kind of just, you know, bursts off the screen. Like, it's, it's been building this whole time. And, yeah, Karloff is creepy the whole time. Lugosi's weird and stuff. Um, but the end, the couple tries to escape. And Karloff and Lugosi are playing chess to determine the fate of this couple. Because Lugosi knows Karloff's up to no good. And so they agree to play a chess match to determine whether or not... Uh, Karloff yeah, will if, keep if Lugosi, the wife. If Lugosi wins, he gets to, to take the girl away and, yeah. and she'll be safe. And if not, Karloff gets to have his way with her. Um, and so they're playing this chess match and the husband, uh, Peter, played by David Manners, he realizes something's up and he's like, we gotta get out of here. And um, first he asks... Oh, first he asks to catch a ride with those really funny police officers right. that show up and have this little banter routine that's like completely it's totally not appropriate. <laughs> at all. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> why it's in there, and it goes on for super long, but it's really funny because it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and he, he tries to um, leave with them, but they're on bicycles, yeah. so he can't catch catch they're a ride with them. They're on bicycles, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then he asks if Karloff can give him a ride and Karloff sends his minion, but the car doesn't work. Yep. Yeah. Car's out of order. Uh, and then he says, well, I'm going to call for a cab or something or yeah, something like that. And then the phone's dead. You know, all these things are stopping. Him. So finally he grabs his wife. He says, we're getting out of here. Leave your bags behind. We're, we're heading out. And the, uh, and we're just going to walk to the train station. And so they start walking out and, you know, uh, Lugosi's Lugosi stops them. Yeah. Stops them. Knocks the guy unconscious, carries the woman away, and then the satanic ritual starts in this awesome dungeon-like thing in the bottom of this house. And all of these people in, in robes show up. It's the dark of the moon, as they say. Um, and Karloff starts intoning... In Latin. In Latin. Yeah, he's, he uses words like lupus and fructose. Yeah, lupus was the only one I recognized. I, yeah, I heard fructose. I, don't, I, I may have misheard that. So I wonder if like there's some relation with like the dog and and the black cat. Oh, uh, maybe something going on there. I don't know. I, maybe maybe if I uh, I work with a guy that uh, is a Latin scholar, maybe I should have him yeah, watch that scene, break it down for me. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so they're there. The ceremony is being performed. The woman is dragged in against her will, and. At, at a crucial moment, Lugosi gets the upper hand and decides now he's going to take his revenge. And so how is he going to take his revenge? He's going to chain up Karloff and <laughs> skin him alive. This is our hero here, people. He's, he's going to take a scalpel and he's going to skin Karloff alive. And he very viscerally rips the clothing off, you know, because obviously they can't show him cutting uh, the skin off, but... It's you kind of see it kind of in silhouette. You don't really see like the bits of skin, but you see but, like, shadows. And the fact that you see his clothes ripped off first is kind of you know you, you know uh, psychologically you know telling sure. you what's going on, um, <laughs> and <laughs> it's just crazy. 
uh, and and oh by the way, the house is rigged with dynamite. We should also mention right. that. Yeah, that's that's an important <laughs> point. Is not only is it a, a Art Deco mansion built on the ruins of a fort overlooking a, a battlefield where thousands of people died, it's also got a basement full of dynamite. Completely rigged with dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Karloff is is standing there naked, being flayed by by Bella Lugosi, and um, the woman is trapped. She can't get out, and. Uh, the key is in, in in the hands of one of the henchmen who is dead, and he's like clutching it. So like rigor mortis is set in, and she can't get the key out. And Bella Lugosi, best part of the movie, best part of the movie. He's he's flaying Boris Karloff alive, and he says, "Oh, let me help you with that." And so he stops skinning him alive to help his woman find the key out. And then, and then the husband shoots him. And then the husband, the husband. <laughs> Oh, this movie's amazing. Um, I'm sorry. I just recounted the whole plot, but who cares? It's great. The the, the final scene of the film has the, the the Americans have gotten away. Lugosi is blown up along with Karloff, and, and all of the Satanists are all dead. Uh, so it's just the couple on this train. This is this is the this is the scene that completely makes this movie. And you know they're they're kind of thinking about you know what just happened to them. And how nobody is going to believe them. Like this is this was their story, and they're just going to go on with their honeymoon. And then he op- <laughs> and then he opens the newspaper, and there's a, he's a writer. He opens the newspaper, and there's a review there's of one of his books. books. And the and the reviewer takes his book to task because he says the story that happens in here could never happen in reality. And they kind of just look at each other, and then the room is up. <laughs> oh my gosh! If you haven't seen the Black Cat. You're missing out. I mean, this thing is bonkers. And so, like, the weirdest thing about this movie, so much weird in this movie, is is the, the eponymous cat. Mm. There's this black cat that wanders around Karloff's house, and he just has a pet cat, as Satanists do. Well, there are apparently multiple cats. Oh, were there multiple cats? Well, according to... Well, you could... You say your thing, then. And Lugosi is is terrified of cats for some reason, and we're never told why. But he has some crazy PTSD thing. Yeah, like he's seriously afraid of cats. Yeah, like he like a, breaks down. Uh, he ends up killing at least one of that's, the cat. The cats that's why. Yeah, exactly. So maybe there are multiple cats, but the cat thing never really pays off. No. It's the title of the movie. He's got it's set up that he's got this deathly fear of cats. But there's no cats in the conclusion of the movie. It's like it's like Chekhov's cat gets abandoned. Yeah. So it, I, I don't I don't know what to do with the with the black cat. Like why is this called a black cat? Why isn't this called, you know, you know, a crazy art deco Satanist? Well, I think it's because this movie was loosely based on the post story. Okay. But it I think they were like, We're gonna do a post story. Let's do the black cat. Okay, well, there's this other movie that I want to make. Let's just throw a black cat in there because this shit's insane. So, okay, have you read the poster? I was going to, but I, I forgot. I, I, you know, I, I went through a Poe phase in high school, and I, I think I did read it, but it's you know, it's all jumbled in my head with all the others, you know, Raven sure. and all that other stuff. So I don't really remember it that well. But uh, the story that plays out in this movie is not the story of uh, the Poe. Well, no, I mean, yeah. it, well. For one thing, it's, it's World War One. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying that I think they took the title because they could, and then uh, 
just threw a black cat in there because they had okay, to. Okay, and, <laughs> yeah. and then they made their, their weird... Then they made their weird, their weird uh, movie. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, you're right. I'm okay um, with that. But yeah, so the first time he sees the cat, he freaks out and he throws something, like a knife or something, and he kills this cat. <laughs> and... And then as soon as he does that, he's like finding him. He's like, "Oh, how are you? Yeah, like, how's your wife?" Kill the cat. <laughs> and you don't—they don't show the cat being killed. Like everyone is just kind of reacting. Like, uh, uh, he just like bludgeoned the cat. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope that. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the music, and uh, we talked about the great like Marauder and, and Bowie score for for Schrader's Cat People. Uh, the music in this is as generic horror movie music as possible. And I don't know if it was just like Carl Lemley's favorite tune, so all of the directors used it for, for all of their films. But the love theme from Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet, it, I think plays in every universal horror movie I've seen. Yeah, probably. And maybe it's just, you know, what they had the rights to or, or something. But not only do you get Romeo and Juliet all through the movie, it's like the theme music and it recurs throughout the film. Karloff actually plays, plays it on the organ. Toccata and Fugue yeah. on the organ. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's, you know, you go from like the really specific, particular, unique score from, from the 80s to the most generic horror movie score possible. Yeah. And I, I liked that. I, oh, it's great. Yeah. It's totally great. And I, I love the touch of him, you know. Of course, every Satanist has a black cat and an organ that they play. I mean, that's yeah, just... and they it, play Bach. Yeah. Because, you know. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really I really enjoyed this movie, and um, I, 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 I want to see more of these. Um, you know, I don't know if the other Poe-Lugosi stuff is, is, is good, but uh, this one was really awesome. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Well, you have the set now. Yeah, I got uh, the uh, the Bella Lugosi collection. Awesome. Which has uh, The Raven, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't watched it yet. Well, but, with uh, that... Definitely, definitely check out Dracula if you haven't seen that. Yeah. Have you seen the Spanish language one? No. I, I hear it's it's interesting, though. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it either, but I'd like to. But uh, but the original is, is pretty good. Yeah, I need to check that out again, because I'm a, I'm a big Browning fan, but that was the first one I saw, and... Um, you know, I've put the others higher than it, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's a classic for a reason. My, my favorite of the Universal horror movies, you know, it might be Black Cat now, actually, now that I think about it, but I really love Frankenstein, the first one. I, I know you... Bride of Frankenstein. People love The Bride of Frankenstein. I, I, I love The Bride of Frankenstein. It's fine. I really love the first one. I think, I I think, think the, the first, first one is, is amazing. Yeah, no, I, I think the first one's great. Uh, I was watching a few of those uh, a couple years ago. Um, I really like the Invisible Man uh, with Claude Rains. Yeah, that's that's a good one because he's he's such a, a bad guy, he's such an asshole. <laughs> uh, that one's great. Um, I've never seen the Wolf Man. I should see the Wolf Man. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, um, but yeah, the Black Cat is definitely up there with with those one those those classic ones. And and Freaks doesn't count, but it's from the same era, and it's oh. it's Todd Browning also, and that is a great movie. That movie talk about crazy. That movie's nuts. And yeah, Freaks is yeah, great. So our, our recommendation for your Halloween is to uh, stay away from Paul Schrader and go... <laughs> go Ulmer. Go with Uncle Carl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, with that, let's hear some more cat power. Uh, this is Crossbone Style.
All right. Thanks, uh, Cat. <laughs> Cat Power. Uh, Sean. Sean Marshall. You know, I just watched uh, My Blueberry Nights, and uh, Sean She's Marshall's crazy. scene in it is so good. It's She's one really of the best good. parts of the whole movie. It's a great score for that movie, too. Yeah. Uh, Cat Power and uh, Nora Jones. Cat Power's a better actress than Nora Jones. I'm putting it out there. She's also yeah, a better musician. So, But Nora Jones is really pretty. Yeah. So that's our show for this week. Uh, next week we will be back. We're going to, it's the, uh, almost exactly the 100th anniversary of Victor Seastrom's Ingeborg Holm. So we're going to watch that. It is apparently one of the, the very first uh, social realist feature films. So it looks pretty fun. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pair that with a film that premiered uh, almost exactly 60 years later, Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain, which, from what I've seen... Uh, doesn't look very realistic. Does not look very realistic <laughs> at all. Uh, that week also marks the 100th birthday of Burt Lancaster, so he's going to be our person of the week. Woo-hoo. And we're going to be picking our essential social problem films, I guess. Cause, Absolutely. Sure, why not? Yeah. Uh, if you are in the Seattle area this week, you should head over to the Grand Illusion. They're playing some horror movies. They got Hellraiser on the 25th and 26th. But the ones that I would go see are is uh, uh, Dario Argento's Deep Red, which they're playing on 35mm on the 28th and 29th. I haven't seen the movie. I've actually only seen one Argento film, uh, Suspiria. But uh, it was pretty cool looking. So I'm kind of creeped out by it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, 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 must would, I would definitely go see, see Deep Red. Yeah, Deep Red is bumping. Uh, apparently, Maniac Cop 1 and 2 got bumped for some reason beyond their control. So yeah. uh, so they got extra show with Deep Red. Yeah, which is cool. Uh, well, tying in with this show, uh, the New Beverly Cinema down there in uh, La La Land is playing a double feature of Edgar Allan Poe uh, films uh, from the same era. They're going to be showing uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue and The Raven, uh, both of them starring Bela Lugosi. Murders in the Room Morgue, I have actually seen. I actually watched that a few months oh. ago. And Lugosi is, is terrific in it. It's got a, a homicidal monkey, which all movies should have. They really should. Have you ever seen uh, The Unholy Three? No. Homicidal monkey in it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that is another great Lugosi movie. Um, yeah, so two Lugosis, uh, October 29th and the 30th. And uh, actually, Stuart Gordon, who did uh, Reanimator and stuff, is going to be in person there presenting those films. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you can find us on the internet at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. Uh, we're on the Twitter at geosandershow. Um, and we also can be found in email form uh, at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. Uh, we also posted on our website the uh, calendar for the next month. So all through November, everything's planned out. So you can go take a look and, you know, maybe play along at home. Sure. <laughs> we're going to be watching some fun stuff. Uh, yeah, that's so, it. So that's it for this week. Uh, no, no George this week. We're going to listen to Robert Smith and The Cure because it's Halloween and these are the love cats.